Find your place in your Bible, if you will, with me this morning at Psalm 118. Psalm 118. We'll not be able to read all 29 verses, but we're going to look at some of the verses out of that chapter. I heard about a middle-aged couple who lived in Michigan. They had a son that lived in New York, and they had a daughter that lived in California. His wife one day, this man's wife one day said that she really wished her kids would be home for the Thanksgiving holiday. So her husband picked up the phone the day before Thanksgiving and called his son in New York and said to him, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are getting a divorce. After 45 years of misery, enough is enough. You can call your sister, and you can tell her. Well, the son was frantic, and he got on the phone immediately to his sister in California, and she exploded on the phone. She said, there's no way they're getting a divorce. There's no way they're getting a divorce, she shouted. She said, I'll take care of this. So she turns right around, and she calls her dad back. She said to her dad, you're not getting divorced. Don't do anything until I get there. I'm calling my brother back, and we're both flying home tonight. We'll both be there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. And she raised her voice. Do you hear me? The man hung up the phone and sat down next to his wife and said, Okay, honey, the kids are coming for Thanksgiving, and they're paying for their own flights. Well, hopefully your holiday season won't be quite so dramatic or require such desperate measures to be able to celebrate with your family. And from all of our staff and from Mary and me, we want to wish you a very happy Thanksgiving season. Psalm 18 is such an important psalm that I want us to spend a few minutes here today thinking about this psalm. You may know the name Martin Luther. He was the great reformer. Uh, He was the one who stood up to the Roman Catholic Church and pointed out the errors of the church. And because he he failed to recant some of his writings about the church at the Diet of Worms, which, by the way, is not a diet to lose weight. If, If we had a Diet of Worms to lose weight, I think we'd probably all be successful. But a diet is an assembly. Worms is a city. So at an assembly at Worms, uh, they... uh, brought him before them, and and the result was he would not recant his words, and his life was endangered. And for this reason, he was rushed away to Wittenberg uh, by coach, and he ended up hiding in a castle called the Wartburg Castle. During 1521 and 1522, when all of this is unfolding, he lived as an outlaw. He was excommunicated from the church, and he spent 10 months at that castle living under an alias. And while he was there, he translated the New Testament from Koine Greek into German. This man, Martin Luther, had something very important to say about Psalm 118. Listen to his words. This is my psalm, my chosen psalm. I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation in my life. But this psalm is nearest my heart. And I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger from which no emperor, nor kings, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. And then he continues. But it may be objected that this psalm is common to all. No one has a right to call it his own. He says, yes. But Christ is also common to all, and yet Christ is mine. I am not jealous of my property. I would divide it with the whole world. And then he closes by saying, And would to God that all men would claim the psalm, Psalm 118, as especially theirs. If someone of such stature places such confidence and loves so dearly this psalm, Psalm 118, shouldn't we spend a few minutes coming to understand some of the things that this psalm teaches us and helps us to be a person who lives in a thankful way every day. Let me give you a little bit of background to Psalm 118. It was written possibly for the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
That's one of the possibilities. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three feasts that the Jewish men, if they lived within a certain distance of Jerusalem, had to journey back to Jerusalem to participate in these feasts. And it's believed by some scholars that this particular psalm was written for the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. There's another group of scholars who believe that this psalm was written for the dedication of the rebuilt walls and temple after the Babylonian captivity. It could be either of those two occasions. It doesn't really matter to us exactly which ones. But you begin to understand the significance of this particular psalm. It is a part of six psalms that are called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel is a Hebrew word that means praise psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And these psalms would be sung or they would be chanted during the observance of the different feasts that would take place in Jerusalem. Especially would they be sung or chanted at the Passover. Uh, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 were sung or chanted before the observance of the Passover. And then Psalm 115 to Psalm 118 were sung or chanted after the observance of Passover. So think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ is in the upper room with his disciples. It won't be long. He'll be going out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible says that Jesus sang a song before they went out. It's very possible that the last song that Jesus sung before he went out and was arrested and taken away to his crucifixion was none other than Psalm 118. And so if this psalm is so significant and has such an importance to the thanksgiving of the people of God, we need to delve into it. We need to learn some things from this psalm about thanks living so that we live every day with thanks in our heart to God. And there's three things that I want to point out to you from this psalm that I hope will cause you to be filled with thanksgiving. First, the psalmist says, I'm thankful God stands with me. I'm thankful God stands with me. Just follow with me beginning in verse 1 down to verse 4. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel, that's all Israel, now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron, that's the priests, now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord, that's people beyond Israel, now say, his mercy endures forever. Something that you might want to know about this psalm, just by way of a technical detail. This psalm begins and ends with exactly the same words. You'll notice in verse 29 of Psalm 118, he uses the exact same words as we read in the first verse. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And five times throughout the course of this psalm, he gives thanks to God. He tells us that we should praise the Lord. Two of them we've just read, Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 118, verse 1, and Psalm 118, verse 29. But the other three, one's found in verse 19, uh, at the end of the verse, and it says, and I will praise the Lord. The same Hebrew word just translated here as the word praise. In verse 21, I will praise you. Again, the same word. And then down in verse 28, you are my God, and I will praise you. So what you begin to understand about this psalm, the takeaway from this psalm, is that this psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving. This psalm is a psalm of praise. And the thing that the psalmist is thanking the Lord for here is that God stands by him. And you and I can say the same. We can be thankful because God stands by us. Uh, there's a layering effect that goes on in, in verses 2 and 3. His mercy endures forever. He gets to verse 3. His mercy endures forever. Then he adds another layer. In verse 4, his mercy endures forever. There's a layering effect. The psalmist is saying this is all about thanksgiving. And we're thankful that the Lord is good. And we are thankful that his mercy endures forever. And he layers it so that you don't miss the point. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy that endures forever. And actually... At least these first four verses were often sung or chanted antiphonally. Um, antiphonally. Uh, the priest would say the first part, and then the people would answer. So let's just practice it with the first verse. I'll give you the first phrase, and then you answer with the second phrase, all right? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, 
for his mercy endures forever. Let's do it again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures. One more time. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And so you can see, as you go through here, how this was done antiphonally. They were giving praise to God. They were lifting up their voices, and they were saying, thank you. And they were led in this praise to God, sometimes by the priests. Now, it's interesting here when he says his mercy endures forever. The thing he's thanking God for here is his mercy. Sometimes we uh, misunderstand the word mercy. So uh, let me give you a little broader understanding of it. If you carry a different translation of the Bible, you'll see that that word mercy is translated in different ways, all emphasizing the same basic thought, but they're translated in different ways. For instance, the Lexham English Bible translates it as loyal love. Mercy literally means loyal love. The New Living Translation translates it as faithful love. The English Standard Version translates it as steadfast love. The New American Standard translates it as loving kindness. Or the Message Bible, it's a little more paraphrased, uses uh, this translation, love that never quits. And I like that. What are they praising him for? They're praising him for his mercy. That is his love that never quits. This word is so broad that it's impossible to define it by a single word. It's just too broad. It's too colorful. It has too many hues to the color to be able to use just a single word. But in essence, what it means is his loyal love, that he stands by us, his faithful love, that he stands by us, his steadfast love, that he stands by us, that, he has, that it's a love that never quits. Think about it this way. This, this love that we're talking about is a love that never gives up on you, no matter what your circumstances are. It's a love that never gives up on you. It's a love that'll never let go of you. It's a love that'll chase you down. That's pretty good, isn't it? And that's pretty good, isn't it? And, and here the psalmist is giving thanks to God for this mercy, for this loving kindness, this loyal love, this kind of love that will never let us down and it will pursue after us no matter where we are because he stands by us. Uh, one of the most well-known psalms is Psalm 23, about the shepherd's song about laying down in green pastures and being led by the still waters. And you come down to verse 6, the very last verse. Listen to what it says. Surely goodness and, what's the word? Mercy, loving kindness, uh, love that never quits, faithful love, steadfast love. Surely goodness and mercy, now listen, shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that great news? God loves you. He will never stop loving you. He will pursue you with his love. He will surround you with his love because he always stands by his people. He always, with loving kindness and with faithful love and with a steadfast love and a love that never quits, surrounds and stands by his people. There's a New Testament way to say this. The Apostle Paul said it in Romans chapter 8. Listen to what it says, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he goes a couple of verses later, verse 28. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature... A created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You hear what he says? God stands by us with this love that never quits. And there isn't anything, there isn't anything that can separate us from that kind of love. My friends, if there's nothing else to be thankful for this season, you need to stop and say, Lord, thank you for that kind of love that pursues me and surrounds me, that you stand by me, no matter what my circumstances are, no matter what I may feel within myself, the fact of the matter is you will never stop loving me and nothing can cut me off from your love. That love is secure. And the psalmist was saying, I'm thankful that God stands by me. But you've got to notice something here. 
you got to notice that that kind of love that he's talking about and he's thanking God for isn't a kind of love that you can just feel and that's the end of it. Notice again, verse 4, excuse me, verse 2. He says, let Israel, what are the next two words? Now say his mercy endures forever. Verse 3, let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. In other words, this is a love that pursues us and surrounds us and never gives up on us and never quits on us, where God is standing by us in his love and surrounding us in his love, something from which we can never be cut off, that is something that we can't just feel, and that be enough. It has to be something that we say and that we express it back to God. It'd be a little bit like you getting a gift, receiving a gift from somebody. Somebody's giving you something for the holidays or something for your birthday. And deep down within yourself, you feel thankful. But let me ask you a question. You may feel thankful, but is that enough? (laughs) You may feel thankful. Is that enough? No. What do you have to do? You have to express thankfulness. You have to say thank you. You have to show thankfulness. That's what the psalmist is saying. The Lord God stands by me. This love that will never, from which I'll never depart. I can't flee from it. It goes wherever I go. It'll never quit. That kind of love that is a faithful love, that is an abiding love, a steadfast love, a loving kindness that surrounds me is a love that I can't just feel It's a love that I've got to announce. It's a love that I've got to talk about. It's a love that I've got to make known. You know, the Bible shows us a number of ways to do that. Thanks is to be given verbally. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Listen to what it says. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Or think about Psalm 147, verse 7. Thanks is to be given musically. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the heart to our God. Thanks is to be given privately. Psalm 7, verse 17, I will give thanks in prayer, he's talking about, to the Lord because of his righteousness. Thanks is to be given regularly. Psalm 119, verse 62, at midnight I will give you thanks for your righteous laws. Uh, Thanks is to be given corporately. Psalm 116, verses 17 and 18, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Thanks is to be given willingly. Psalm 100 100, verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Thanks is to be given generously. Psalm 109 verse 30, I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Thanks is to be given joyfully. Psalm 107 verse 22, let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Thanks is to be given universally. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, in everything give thanks, and thanks is to be given eternally. Psalm 79, verse 13, so we, your people, and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. Now look, whether it's forever, whether it's privately in prayer, whether it's corporately with the body of Christ, whether it's out loud in music, or it's with your voice, or in any other number of ways. We should be thanking the Lord for his mercy that endures forever, this love that never goes away, this love that's faithful and strong and steadfast and true, this love from which you can never be severed. We should be saying, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What an incredible passage of Scripture about this kind of love. I want to read to you from Psalm 136. By the way, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel is a Hebrew word that means praise. These praise psalms. Psalm 136 is also a praise psalm added to these six Hallel Psalms. But just just listen to how the psalmist uh, how the psalmist said it, says it. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love. That's His mercy. 
His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it goes that way for 26 verses. By the way, all of those of you that say, I don't like songs that have repetitive words. You might not want to read Psalm 136 and several others as well, by the way. For his love endures forever. This steadfast, loyal kind of love that will never depart from which you can never be cut off. He says, I thank God that he stands by me. And this love surrounds me, and it's a love from which I can never escape. If you have nothing else to give thanks for, you should be giving thanks to God for his mercy and giving thanks to God for his loving kindness and giving thanks to God for his steadfast love. You can't go far enough to get out of his love. You can't do anything, and no one can do anything to you to cut you off from that love. He stands by you. And that's one of the reasons the psalmist said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Secondly, the psalmist says, I'm thankful God stands with me. It's not that God just stands by me. It's that God stands with me as well. Now I'm talking about when he's surrounded by the enemies. Now I'm talking about when he's feeling the pressure and the stress of those that are trying to destroy him or take away his life. Look at it for a moment, verse 10. Verse 10, he says, all nations surround me. Verse 11, they surround me. Yes, they surround me. Verse 12, they surrounded me like bees. Let's just stop there. That's a pretty graphic one. You ever hit a bee's nest and regretted it? Tried to knock it down and they came after you? He's surrounded by bees. He goes on, they were quenched like a fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Again and again, he says, I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded. But look, the Lord not only stood by him, the Lord stood with him. Look, look at what it says, beginning in verse 15. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Here it is, the right hand, that's the hand of power. The place of power and position. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And repeatedly, back in verses 11, 12, and 13, he says, God cuts them off. God cuts them off. God cuts them off. Here's the picture. Here's the picture. It is of a man who is surrounded by his enemies who would like to take away his life. And he's looking at those enemies. But look, here's the thing. If you only look at your enemies, you will inevitably get discouraged and depressed. What does the psalmist do? The psalmist lifts up his eyes, and he says, I'm going to look beyond my enemies, and I'm going to look to God, the God of heaven who stands with me, no matter who is surrounding me or what is surrounding me. I, I would tell you, just note sometime when you're reading through your Bible, Psalm 118, how many times you find the name of the Lord mentioned? Actually, I'll tell you this. Every verse, did you hear that? Every verse references the Lord. 28 times you find the phrase, the Lord. Three times you find the name God, El or Elohim. Uh, the other few verses that are left, his, a pronoun is used clearly in reference to God. What is he telling us? When we back out from this psalm, when we get a wider view of what's going on in this psalm, here's a man who's surrounded by his enemy. That They're surrounding him and wanting to take away his life. And he lifts up his eyes and he looks beyond his enemy and he sees the God of heaven and he recognizes that God is standing with him. God is 
is standing with him. It's an incredible thought. Uh, he was thankful that, that God stood by him, that his loving kindness was something from which he could never be severed, but he was thankful that God stood with him when he was surrounded by the enemies. It, it reminds me a little bit of the story of David and Goliath. Goliath, more than nine feet tall. David, just a young shepherd boy. He goes to take some food to his brothers. He hears Goliath defying the armies of Israel. He can't figure out, why aren't they going out and taking down this giant? You know the rest of the story. David ultimately gets five smooth stones. He takes his sling, and he walks out into that valley with that giant. The, the giant looks at him and says, are you sending a dog out here to me? Now, you and I think about a dog as being a pet and something we love. That was a derogatory term. You're sending a dog out here to me, this young boy? Are you sending him out here to me? Listen to how David comes out. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You hear what he's What he's doing? David is lifting up his eyes beyond the nine-foot-plus giant, and he's seeing his God that is bigger and greater than the giant that's in that valley. Don't measure your God by the giant. Measure the giant by your God. Make sure to lift up your eyes and see who God is. Make sure you understand that he is with you no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, no matter how you're surrounded. He is with you. He is with you. He is with you. One of the evidences of that is found in the Christmas story. So I guess I'll bounce past Thanksgiving right into that dangerous territory of talking about Christmas too early. You remember the story of remember the story of the birth of Christ? Isaiah 7 14 said he'd be called what what was the name? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. You get to the Gospels and you discover that Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. You know what Emmanuel means? It means with us is God. It's just another reminder that God stands with us. With us is God. God, he came in Bethlehem to be amongst us, to be with us. That's an incredible thought. It's something for which to give thanks to God. It reminds me of a cute little story about two elderly spinster sisters. They lived together for 60 years on a farm, and everything around them was falling apart. The farm machinery was rusted, and it was useless. The chicken coop and the barn were barely standing upright. Everything around them was in dire need of repair. And to be honest with you, those two women were tough as nails, but life had been pretty rough for them as well. And they looked a little bit weathered themselves. One fall afternoon, a nephew came out to visit with them, spent some time with these two spinster sisters. And while he was there, he enjoyed his time, but as he left... He had them stand in front of the farm, and he took a picture of these two sisters, like, like a Norman Rockwell kind of portrait. And those two sisters standing there, straight as they could be, with this dilapidated farm behind them. And he snapped the picture. He sent them back a copy of that picture. <clears throat> and those two sisters took that picture, and they put it on the front of their Christmas card took them and put it on the front of their Christmas card. Across the top of the Christmas card, it says, Merry Christmas. And down at the bottom of the Christmas card, it says, God is with us in our mess. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that God is with you, not just when everything's turning up roses and all of life is good, and not just when there are no enemies surrounding you, that God is always with you. He never leaves you. He'll never forsake you. He never leaves you, and he will never forsake you. That is incredibly good news. And I want you to see what happens here. When he gets his eyes off of the surrounding enemy that are like bees that are surrounding him, just looking to sting him to death, when he gets his eyes off of the armies that are around him, and he lifts up his head, and he recognizes that he's not there alone, that God is with him, and he starts getting his focus on God, 28 times the Lord. Three times the name God. In every other of the occasions in the verse, pronouns referring to the Lord or to God. 
He gets his eyes off of those that are surrounding him, and he gets his eyes on the Lord, and suddenly what happens is his confidence begins to grow. His confidence begins to swell within him. Look at it again. Verse 15, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Now listen, his confidence is growing. It'll go on past verse 17, but we'll stop at verse 17. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. You hear his confidence? A little while earlier, he's surrounded by the enemy. It's all around him that would love to destroy his life. But he stops, and he thinks about the Lord, and he lifts up his eyes, and he gets his eyes on God, and he stops measuring his enemies. Uh, He stops measuring God by his enemies and starts measuring his enemies by God. And suddenly, confidence begins to grow within him. And the very birth of Christ itself is a reminder to all of us, that God stands with us. So the psalmist thanked the Lord that God stood by him. And the psalmist thanked the Lord that God stood with him. But then may I say that the psalmist thanked the Lord and said, I thank, I'm thankful that God stands for me. I'm thankful God stands by me. I'm thankful God stands with me. I'm thankful, the psalmist says, God stands for me. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, he stands in my place. He steps into my place. Look at Psalm 118. Look at verse 22. Notice what it says. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now look at the picture that he's drawing. Stonemasons would take stones and building these different buildings not everything was made with stone. But those that were made with stone, a stonemason would take these stones and he would fit them in. And if one didn't fit or didn't seem to be right, he would discard it. He would reject it and he would discard it. But here's what he's saying. That stone that was discarded has become the cornerstone. That's the chief stone. That's the most important stone. That's the one by which every other stone is measured. What in the world is he talking about? Let me show you. Just turn over to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 4. In one of the early sermons of the New Testament church, it's quoted, this particular passage. Actually, this, that, that verse that I've read to you from Psalm 118 is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. But it's quoted in this sermon, and it'll, it'll, it'll give you an understanding of what we're talking about. Acts chapter 4, verse 11 Here comes the quote, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. You know where that comes from? Psalm 118, verse 22. But now what is he talking about? Verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who is this rejected stone that becomes the cornerstone? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And how does Jesus become this cornerstone? Jesus becomes the cornerstone because he steps into our place. He steps into our place and he stands for me. That's what he's doing at Calvary, friends. When Jesus is going to the cross at Calvary, he's not going there for any sins he committed. He's going for the sins we've committed. He's suffering in our place. When he's made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ, Jesus is stepping into our place and he's taking about himself what we rightfully deserve. In theology, we call that the vicarious atonement. Vicarious atonement. It simply means that Jesus took upon himself our guilt and punishment and in return gives us his righteousness and life. I wish I had time to show you Psalm 118. It tells us about Christ's triumphal entry. It tells us about his death and resurrection. It tells us about uh, several things. It's, it's, it's a messianic psalm. So that when you get to verse 22 of uh, Psalm 118, about the stone that was rejected that becomes the cornerstone, he's speaking prophetically about Jesus Christ who's going to come and stand for us. 
He's going to die in our stead, and that one who stands for us becomes the cornerstone by which all of our lives are measured and the foundation on which all of us must build our lives. There's a story about a Russian general who gave a command that anyone stealing food was to be beaten with 50 lashes. Later that evening, some of the men caught an old woman stealing food. The general gave the command to have her beaten. When they brought this woman into the plaza, he gasped because it was his own mother. Because he loved her so and he didn't want her to suffer, he didn't know, she, he knew she wouldn't live through this flogging, but he knew that he had to have his justice fulfilled. He went down to his mother. He released her from the bonds. He brought her up and put her in his seat. And he went down and put himself in the bonds. And he took the beating for her. That's what Jesus does. He stands for us. On the cross of Calvary, he stood for us and took what we rightfully deserve on himself. Listen, that's reason to give thanks. We thank the Lord that he stands by us. We thank the Lord that he stands with us. But listen, he stands for us. He steps into our stead and into our place and takes on himself what we should rightfully deserve, the separation from God forever. But can I just tell you some other good news? He didn't just do that one time. He died one time, once for all, forever. But, but, but listen, he stands for you repeatedly. Listen to how it's put. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You hear what he says? Uh, it's, a, it's a legal term, an advocate. It's a legal term. We have lawyers in our church, and I, I, I appreciate all of them. I keep my eye on them. But I appreciate all of those lawyers. I appreciate the work that they do. But can I just tell you, there's never been a lawyer like Jesus. Not only did he stand for us at Calvary and take upon himself what we rightfully deserve, but every time before the Father, he stands for us as our advocate so that when our conscience or the attacks of Satan, the accusations of Satan, our conscience accuses us or Satan accuses us, you know who steps forward? Who stands for us? Our advocate. Jesus Christ steps forward. And he stands for us. I don't know how it unfolds. I don't know what that heavenly scene is exactly like. But I could imagine. Can you, can you imagine? Satan pointing out, Lord, look, look, look. Look at what he's doing. Look at what David just did. Look at what he's, how he's living. Look at what he's thinking. Lord, look, look, look. And our lawyer steps forward, the advocate, and he stands for us. And he says, he's forgiven. 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 I paid for it all. This is an awful quiet crowd. Ought to be thankful. He stands for us. He stood for us at Calvary. He stands for us constantly as our lawyer in He's better than any Perry Mason will ever be. Any of you remember Perry Mason? I remember watching Perry Mason when I was a boy growing up. It was on a black and white TV. Had to wait for the tubes to warm up. And I could still hear the music in the back of my head. My daddy used to come home about the time Perry Mason was coming on. <coughs> Perry Mason never lost a case. Well, maybe not ever lost a case. But let me tell you something. Jesus has never and will never ever lose a case see the psalmist says i'm thankful that god stands by me his love is loyal it's steadfast it follows follows me wherever i go it'll never leave me i can never be cut off from his love i'm thankful that God stands with me when I'm surrounded by the enemies that would like to take away my life. I can look up above my enemies and I can see that God is greater than my enemies and my confidence within me grows and gets stronger and stronger so that I can say I will live. And he says I'm thankful that God stands for me, that the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone 
And that cornerstone came and stepped into our place and took our punishment. And that cornerstone stands before the Father as our constant advocate so that we can never be condemned. You know, what a great way to live. What reasons, what great reasons for us to give thanks. Are you thankful that he stands by you, never stops loving you? Are you thankful that he stands with you when you're surrounded by the various things of life that are seeking to take you down? Are you thankful that he he stands for you? at Calvary, and every single day at the throne of the Father. Are you thankful? The psalmist was thankful. No wonder Martin Luther looked at this psalm and said, this is my favorite of all the psalms. It brought to him peace, and it brought to him strength, and it brought to him confidence. It brought to him courage. It brought to him security. He found it all in this psalm. But you know, there's a lot of people today that can't live that way. Some of you are living without any peace. You don't know where you're going when your heart stops beating. You don't know where you're going to be in eternity. You live every day wondering, what about my sin? What about my sin? You know that there's something got to be done with your sin. You know that you're not good enough to get into heaven on the basis of who you are or what you've done. None of us are. And you live your whole life wondering. You live your whole life wondering Sometimes you get to be religious and you go through the religious motions, but you never learn to have a relationship, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I was reading about William Shatner. Any of you know that name? He's a television star. All you Trekkie fans, any Trekkie fans in the room? (laughs) All three of us. (laughs) Any of you Star Wars fans in the room? All six of you. William Shatner was being interviewed in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he was repondering, reflecting on uh, the death of another actor that he knew. And in the article, this is what it says he said. I'm so not ready to die. It petrifies me. I go alone. I go to a place I don't know. It may be the end. My thought is that it is the end. I become nameless, and I spent a lifetime trying to be known. What a horrible way to live your life. What a horrible way to leave your life. But can I tell you, there's a lot of people that are living that very way. Some of you may be in this room. Others are watching us. They're living that very way. They have no assurance. They have no peace. They have no certainty. They're not... They're not confident that their sins are forgiven, that they're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're they're not thankful today that God stands with them and that God stands by them and that God stands for them. They don't have that kind of thankfulness because they've never come to Jesus. And they've never said, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe what you did was for me. I believe your death on Calvary was for me. I believe your payment was for me. I believe you rose again for me. Jesus, I believe in you. And if you haven't ever done that, I'm begging you in these moments as we begin to close this service, I'm begging you to open your heart and to invite Christ into your life. Can we bow our heads together for just a moment? This service is going to end differently than most of our services. So please, when we finish praying in a moment, be prepared for what comes next. But you're listening to my voice, and you're hearing that God stands by you. And God stands with you. And that God stands for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, in these next few moments... Will you take these moments to say, thank you, Lord? Five times in that psalm, he gave thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. He kept thanking him over and over, layering it one on top of the other. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love that will not let me go. Thank you, thank you. Would you take a few moments and say thank you? Maybe you're listening to my voice 
and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're not certain that you're going to heaven. You don't know that your sins are forgiven. Today, you'd like to know that. Listen, friends, it's not about a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church. It's about putting your faith in Jesus. You say, what do you mean? I mean, you believe that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. And by believing in him, he gives you eternal life. Right where you're seated, right where you're watching, you can believe in Christ. You can word it into a prayer. You can just simply say, Lord, today, I trust you to be my Savior. I trust you to give me life everlasting. I trust you to take away my sins. I trust you to make me your child. You can tell him right now. Heavenly Father, we stop and we say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that you stand by us. Thank you that you stand with us. Thank you that you stand for us. Thank you that your love is something from which we can never be severed. Thank you that when we're surrounded by the enemies, that you're greater than anything we face because you stand with us. Thank you that you stand for us. At Calvary, you took our place. And now as our advocate, you stand before the Father. And I pray, Lord God, that today we would be people who learn to give thanks. Thanks to you. And Lord, may it not just be during one season of the year or one day of the year. May it be the way we live every day, a thanks-living kind of a life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
For God has been my Father, my Savior and my friend. His love was my beginning, and His love will be my end. I could spend forever dying to tell you everything But the best way that I can say it is this. God's been good in my life. I feel blessed beyond my wildest dreams when I go to sleep each night. Though I've had my share of hard times, I wouldn't change them if I could. Cause through it all, God's been Thanksgiving series to a close with one last story. He was born 1865 to 1936. He was born in Bombay, in India, but he was technically English. He wrote poetry and he authored books. Some of those you might know. Captain Courageous, How the Leopard Got His Spots, The Jungle Books. Do you know that man's name? His name was Rudyard Kipling. Kipling's writings not only made him famous, it made him a fortune. It made him a fortune. One day he was being interviewed by a newspaper reporter, and this is what the reporter said to him. Mr. Kipling, I just read that somebody calculated that the money you make from your writings amounts to over $100 a word. Now today that might be 1000 or 10000 or 100000 but every word is worth $100. So the reporter reached into his pocket. He pulled out a $100 bill and gave it to Mr. Kipling. And he said, here's a $100 bill. Now give me one of your $100 words. Mr. Kipling looked at the money for a moment, folded it up, and he put it in his pocket. And he said, thanks. <laughs> Don't forget to use that word all the time, every day, especially this week.